Hey, Five Oaks family. Before we jump into the sermon today, I want to give you an update on our BLESS campaign. Uh, as most of you know, we launched the BLESS campaign last fall, and it's a campaign that's focused on blessing our neighbors, our neighbors around our church, throughout our community, through our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in our schools. And we focused on BLESS practices. Uh, we focused on these in our sermons, in our small groups, and these BLESS practices were ways that we can point people to the love and grace that's found in Christ, to, that, to the gospel story. We also focused on raising funds. And some of those funds are for making our property and our building more uh, inviting and a more welcoming environment. Things like redoing our parking lot and updating the outdoor and indoor entrance areas. We also are raising funds for retooling our gym for better ministry to kids and to youth and to our whole church family. And 5% of all funds that are raised will go to some strategic impact initiatives. Our first one was equipping the media center at Woodbury Elementary with needed book carts. And then there are funds for debt reduction and strengthening our financial foundations. And I'm happy to say that we have now paid off one of our $300,000 debt notes, which frees up $24,000 a year. That's a great help in strengthening our financial foundations. In my next month's update, we'll be talking about plans for uh, the indoor and outdoor entry areas. Uh, we've had to adjust some of those plans, and we are working on that now. And that won't start until the funds come in. But we're working on those plans, and we can't wait to share them with you. And soon we'll be sharing about our next impact initiative. Now, I want you to remember, this is a two-year-plus journey. And if you weren't able to pledge or to give to the campaign last fall, you still can join in with your church family by going to fiveoaks.church slash blessed. That's fiveoaks.church slash blessed. Thank you all for joining us in this journey. God bless you. Welcome, everybody. My name is Henry Michael. I'm the student pastor here. And welcome to everybody who is online as well. If you want, you can turn to your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 15 through, through 20. Uh, we're on our fifth week of our series on foundational biblical doctrines, and this week we are going to see what, what God's Word says about His Son, Jesus. But before we jump into the sermon and our, our reading for, for this week, let's pray for God's Word to illuminate in our hearts and in our minds. And this prayer is based on Ephesians chapter 1. Heavenly Father, you alone are God. You rule and reign over every situation and every circumstance of yesterday, today, and forevermore. You alone have the power to save. As we look to your word, we ask for the wisdom and revelation that comes from your spirit. Help us to know you better. Shape us by your truth. Remind us that our hope is in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the reason why we're doing this series is because every single day, every breath we take, we are being told powerful stories, captivating images, pervasive messages that indoctrinate us in, to look at our world apart, what, apart from what God has revealed to us in Scripture. It's as if we are falling under a spell where God becomes increasingly irrelevant in our lives. 
Our beliefs become increasingly unbelievable, and we walk away from our faith with our minds, our hearts, and oftentimes with our feet as well. So what if the world is wrong? What if the world isn't all that there is? And to break this spell, we need to be reminded and, and more deeply comprehend the foundational teachings of our faith so that we can be captivated by their immense beauty, goodness, and truth. The spell must be broken. So as we do it in every week of this series, I want to ask you to use your imaginations. Imagine you're living in a fortress, and that's all you know, and that's what you're told, that that is all there is. And a part of you wants to believe that that's all there is. But in there, this fortress, there is a room that you've never been able to enter until now. You've been given the key to enter. This room is called the Room of Marvels, because in it, you're going to be introduced to, to wonders and ideas and beings that you could only imagine existed. And you're going to be introduced to that realm that is ruled by the one that is called the infinite king. So with that in mind, let's listen to the reading of God's word. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What struck me when I first was studying this uh, to prepare for the sermon is how um, Poetically, he writes about his relationship with Jesus, and, and this is before there were a thousand commentaries on Colossians and a thousand books about every single word within these verses. And you can tell when you read this that Paul has a real, visceral, robust relationship with Jesus. When I was in middle school, um, back in Lake Middle School, uh, that's where we met at the time, and, and that was the days when we had programming on Sunday mornings for, for youth group, and uh, I remember it very vividly. We were in the side hallway near the lockers, and um, we would have a lesson every single week, and there was this kid named Marcellus in our group, and his name wasn't Marcellus. We just called him Marcellus for whatever reason. We were in middle school, um, and we thought it was funny. Uh, we weren't making fun of him, it's just, I don't know why we called him that, but every single week after the Bible lesson, he would answer at least one question the same way every single time, and I think you guys all know this answer, but there was tension every single time. We'd look to Marcellus, like, is he going to do it? And every single time, at least with one question, he would answer the question, no matter what it was, because it was about Christianity, he would answer with the one word, Jesus. Jesus is the answer to everything. Jesus is the answer for that middle schooler who's not paying attention but still wants to get the question right. 
Jesus is the answer. Uh, I, people asked me this week, hey, what are you preaching on? I'm like, Jesus. And everyone would always chuckle because it's like, oh, yeah, okay, obviously. But I am. I'm preaching on Jesus. Uh, another side note, too. Um, my, uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but my dad uh, only taught one middle school lesson during that time. And he refused to ever do it again. And it's not because of middle schoolers. It was because of me and my friends. We were terrible. And so, sorry, middle schoolers. You are bearing the fruit or reaping the fruit of my behavior. Now, Marcellus, he wasn't trying to be funny. Or he was trying to be funny. I'm not trying to slam him, you know, years later. Uh, but I think we can all uh, identify with that answer and with that attitude uh, that comes with that answer. Because we may have grown up, some of us, and we've, we've read books, and we've studied the Bible, and, and we still talk about Jesus, and we may have more complex answers that seem more deep, but when it gets down to it, and when we look at our lives, that answer still seems to really play out as, you're just answering Jesus. We know him or about him. We know about Jesus, but we don't truly know him. We know facts, but those facts don't, don't force a response in our daily lives. It's the reason why competing stories take such hold of our lives. And I think it all comes down to worship and how we worship. It's far easier in a world that can captivate our minds and our hearts to merely be brains on a stick where we can know about Jesus intellectually, but it doesn't manifest itself meaningfully in our daily lives. James K. Smith, uh, he says this, he says, too often we try to define the essence of Christianity by a summary of doctrines. We turn to texts and to theologians in order to discern the ideas and beliefs that are distinctive to Christianity. That's akin to thinking one can understand Hamlet just by reading the script, but it is only properly a play when it is performed. And there's a kind of understanding of Hamlet that comes from its performance that cannot be found in just the script. And that's the point of our series we want to find beauty in biblical doctrine. So I want to ask, how do we, like Paul, go beyond just knowing about Jesus, but having a visceral, real relationship with Jesus? How do we go beyond Christian education that is, is only looked at as reading books and knowing facts going beyond, that goes beyond being just brains on a stick? I think that's what we really want when we study about Jesus. And knowing those facts, there's nothing wrong. That's, it's a good thing, and that's the point of our series. We need to know about Jesus if, if we're going to worship for him rightly. But don't we want a deeper relationship? Don't we want that for our kids, for the next generation? If knowing Jesus means knowing the most about Jesus and having complex answers to questions, if that's the essence of Christianity, I think we're, we're saying that kids have to be a certain age before they can really experience the fullness of Christ. People with special needs can never experience the fullness of Christ if we boil it down to just being brains on a stick. Doctrine is good, but lived out doctrine is not only better, it's a way to teach the next generation that's more powerful than any speaker, any book, or any sermon ever could. 
Our imagination of worship needs to go past singing songs on Sunday morning. As beautiful as that is and as needed as that is, but we need to move it towards whole life Christian formation where God's glory plays out in our lives, making the ordinary extraordinary. So let's see how emblems uh, sets us up for the doctrine of Christ. The person of Christ. Christ, the death killer. Your hope hinges on another. Eden taught you that you need someone to take your poison. Eden taught you that you cannot save yourself. Those drowning in the ocean don't throw themselves life preservers. Those whose hearts stop beating can't make their hearts beat again on their own. So it is with sin. You can't rescue yourself from your sin because with sin, you aren't just in danger of dying. You're already spiritually dead. Sinners are like prisoners on death row. The king's just and right court has already declared their death sentences. Sinners are just waiting for the verdict to be carried out. You can try and try to make your world right. You can run from your sins and your problems, but no matter how hard you try and no matter how hard you run, they will still be there. That's why you are standing in a tomb right now. This is where your sin finally catches up with you. A pitch black grave is where everyone's story ends. The graveyard waits for everyone, including you. And death always delivers because death always gets his man or his woman or his boy or his girl. Because death has a secret. He has power over everyone because everyone is a sinner, except for one, this one, this one whose tomb you stand in right now, he is different. Have you seen it? Have you seen what is different about his tomb? His tomb is empty. His tomb is open. That is because he is the death killer. This is his promise and his name but you may know him by one of his many other names. Some call him the son of God in order to announce his divine other than this and distinction from the world. He calls himself the son of man so he could freely define himself through his life, teachings, and work during his life on earth. He also goes by Lord, a title reserved for God alone. Others simply know him as the Christ, the Messiah, the one anointed or christened to rescue humanity from sin and death. Others call him by his name, Jesus, quietly declaring that he will save his people from their sins every time they speak this name, Matthew 1.21. Now the death killer has many other names, but if you stop to combine the truth contained just in these, you have a beautiful mosaic of Christ's full spectrum beauty and work. The death killer is more than you could ever imagine because you need him to do the unimaginable for you. So this morning we're going to look at three essential doctrines that we can know about Christ that can and should lead to worship. And that first doctrine is that the death killer dies on a cross. 
And so the doctrine of Christ, it is a big and it's a vast uh, concept in it, and it and it's, would take millions of years to even get to the depth of, of Jesus and his person and his work. And, and like I said, we don't worship Jesus in a vacuum. We don't worship Jesus by what we think Jesus is. We look to scripture in order to see who Jesus is so that we can worship him rightly. And so we look at verse 15 in Colossians 1. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And we've been slowly going through different doctrines of Christ over the last couple months. And if you were in our Advent series, if you need a refresher, you can go back to that. But we talked about God or Jesus being fully God and fully man. And how important that is. Because if he's God, he was there from the beginning. And if he was man, it means everything. If he was not fully God and fully man, he would just be a good example Somebody that we can say, oh, I hope I can live like that someday, and, and that would be it. He would just be someone we look up to. His death would mean nothing. Jesus is our rescue mission. He became fully human so that he could pay our, the penalty for our sins, but the power of God rose him from the dead. And this knowledge should give us a depth to our worship. If you think about it, Jesus, the death killer, the image of the invisible God, he was seen on earth, firstborn over all creation. He holds everything together, even the things we cannot see. All powers, authorities, and rulers and thrones, they were set up by him and held together by him. That's hope right now, no matter what political person you, you support. And with all of that, what is his mission on earth? He says in his own words in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The person who holds all things together, he has one of the best resumes that you could ever have. And what does he do? He came to serve. And I think it, the world can look at that and, and, and it, they can say, oh, that's, a really, that's really nice because, I mean, we, we can appreciate power humbling themselves and serving. Like, that's something I think everybody can get around. But I think the other part that, that might trip us up a little bit is that ransom part. That ransom part puts us in the center of that story because we are sinners. We needed our sin paid for. As we talked about last week, sin, sin is not just breaking some commandments, it's an active rebelling against our creator. Because of this rebellion that started in Genesis 3, that's going to go all the way until Jesus comes back, our sins deserve and require judgment. Our rebellion must be answered by God, and we deserve harsh judgment. We deserve eternal separation from him, and it sounds terrible, and it sounds like a downer way to think about ourselves but we shouldn't want it any other way in light of the cross. See, there's two major ways that churches uh, have spoken about sin in our part in it, in our city, in our world, in our country, and they're wrong and they rob God of his glory. One is that we can fight sin. We can pull ourselves up if we think the right thing, if we manifest good thoughts, if we try really hard, then we can be free of sin and we can please God by our actions. 
The other way is that we don't play any part in sin. We are victims of sin. It was forced upon us. We are being oppressed and we're victims looking for liberation so that we can truly be free. But both of those views take Christ and his cross out of the story and puts the focus on us and our power and our problem that we can be freed from. It takes Jesus out of it completely. He took our weight, our sin, our judgment as a ransom for us so that we can live free, so that we can worship God rightly. We can imagine Jesus on the cross looking down at his creation, his image bearers, the people he created, the people he loved, the people he was dying for as they nailed him to a cross and they beat him and they mocked him and they spit on him. And what is his response? It's forgive them for they do not know what they do. This wasn't just a bunch of people who did this 2,000 years ago. This was us. This was our sin that had to put him on that cross. It needed to be paid for. We are the problem. But because we are the problem, the cross freed us from that problem. We can get kind of an idea of what this is if you, in a small respect, if we can think like, man, we didn't study for the biggest tests of our lives, but someone came in there and got every question right and took that test for us or took our credit card debt or our student loans, paid off our house, paid the rent for the rest of time. And that's just a small picture of what Jesus did. He took our death, our sin, and the weight of that on himself. And with knowing that, we need to move past just setting aside an hour on Sunday morning and call that good enough for worship. Listen, you have an hour on Sunday. If you're a student, middle school or high school, maybe you have another hour and a half on Wednesday night if you go every single week. And if you have a a small group, you might have another two hours. You have maybe a total of three hours of direct Christian formation that's set in your life. And the rest of that time, the rest of your life, you are being told what hope is in a world that is selling you hopelessness. But there's a hope that we form our lives around. He is not only the death killer. He is your death killer if he is your king. And if he's your king, he rules over every intention and every inclination in your life. And so one way that we can worship, or two ways that we can worship, and how the death killer can be our king, and one of those things is by accepting your part. Accepting your part of the problem. This is called confession or lament. And it seems counterintuitive as worship because you may think, oh, we've got to feel bad about ourselves. We've got we to think about all the terrible things. And that's partially true. But what is happening here is you're not glossing over your sin. You're not thinking of it flippantly. You're not thinking of it as a problem in the past. You're the reason Jesus had to come to die. And we can think about that and we can lament over that. We tell you to read your Bibles almost every single week as a, uh, a next step. And we tell you that not just for the sake of reading your Bibles, but it gives language to worship. It gives language to lament. If you look in the Psalms, you will find lament after lament, praise after praise. And write down Psalm 51 as a good way to lament. I'm not going to read it here. Or Psalm 130 
Psalm 42 and 43, these are great languages of lament. In Psalm 42, 11, it says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Looking at the problem, the fact that we aren't living in right relationship with God when we sin. But then he moves past that and he says, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. When we lament, when we confess our sins, when we recognize we are part of the problem, we don't just stop there and stay there and get all sad. We move towards freedom. Some of you take your sin very, very seriously. I don't have to tell you to sit and lament. But oftentimes when we sit and lament and we stew over how terrible we've been and all the past failures, we lose the fact that those sins have been paid for, that there is no more guilt and no more shame in the cross because it has been paid for. That ransom has been taken on Jesus. There's no more sitting in that because we have freedom in the cross. And this isn't something we just do at church. This is something that we make a daily rhythm in our lives, not forgetting what Christ has done for us on the cross. Because there's even better news that the death killer brings. And that is that the death killer kills death. To understand the death killer's mission, we need to ask the question, why didn't Jesus stay in the grave? And we see that in the second half of our scripture in verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He didn't stay in the grave because he wanted to show that his plan worked, that he killed death, that the power and the consequence of sin is gone. God can be your king because Jesus stepped out of the tomb. And that's the hope that we have. Are you a sinner? Yes. Are you a part of the problem? Absolutely. But the resurrection was the death killer's victory song. He is our rescuer. He gave us a way to live with God forever. Sin couldn't hold him. Neither could death. And that means absolutely everything to us as Christians. Because we encounter death all the time. Here's the hope. If Jesus is the head of the body, he's the firstborn among the dead, meaning he's supreme over all things, God's fullness dwells in him, and that all things are going to be reconciled to him through his blood shed on the cross, that should mean everything to us because death is scary. Sickness is scary. Uncertainty is scary. The scariest thing about COVID is we don't know how it's going to hit us. You could be the healthiest person in the world and it can wreck you. There's also social pressures of, am I doing this right? Or am I taking too many masks? Am I not putting my mask up? There's fear and there's worry and there's stress, but it's not new because before the pandemic, we were scared about other things. There was fear per, all in our lives. We feared our jobs. We feared relationships ending. We feared what other people thought about us. We feared about our finances. We feared about what our kids would turn out like. We feared about what they were being exposed to. I could go on and on and on. And sure, there's, we feel hope 
and there's not as much fear when we're inside the walls of the church, but we're going to leave these walls into a world obsessed with fear. Last Saturday, uh, Larry King, uh, news legend, died at 87. In 2015, the New York Times um, wrote an article about him, and, they, and, and it's about his obsession with death. He began his days reading obituaries and ponders, who's going to read the eulogy at my funeral? And then he smiles to himself, and he's like, well, maybe Bill Clinton will. And then his face goes blank because he's not going to be there to hear it. He's had a heart attack, quintuple bypass, prostate cancer, diabetes. He's gone through seven divorces. He was 77 years old when CNN dropped him. And when the news came on, and that's when he started confronting the fact that he is going to die someday. When the, the news of Osama bin Laden's death came on, he jumped up and he's like, I need to report this. I need that red light to go on. But then he realized he had nowhere to go. To move against death and aging, he takes hormone pills for human growth, for them each day. He plans for his body to be frozen so that one day he's going to live again. He says it's nuts, but at least it gives him a hope, a shred of hope. And as Larry King says, other people have no hope. And that is not just some guy crazy guy who's doing everything he can to, to fight off death. That is us when the world disenchants us from the beauty of the gospel. Fear of death is real. Obsession with death makes sense in a world that is broken. It has power because all of us are literally moving there one day at a time. We need to confront that. But it is not scary for followers of the king. Our hope is so much greater. Through the death killer's death, he swallowed up our disease, our virus, the thing that, that has power over us, that not only controls us, but keeps us from experiencing God. His death shows that this has no more power over us. He has made peace with rebels, but the death killer also stepped out of the tomb. He didn't just die for sinners, he rose from the dead for sinners as well. Sin and death couldn't hold him. His resurrection was a victory song. He is our rescuer. In the resurrection, God's right side up kingdom entered into this upside down world that we currently live in. And that hope blossomed with every step he took out of the tomb for those who have made his resurrection their own. And we can proclaim with joy and confidence like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can say all that is true. This is all true. That we no longer have to fear. But why do we still fear? Why do we still panic It's because our vision of worship ends after the hour on Saturday night or Sunday. We aren't in the practice of practicing this kingdom that Christ has entered into our world that brings joy and hope and life. We are more formed by the news, CNN, Fox News, by social media, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, 
than the Death Killer's victory song. And so as a community of hope, people who find, whose king is the death killer, we can replace fear, things that bring fear that controls us in our daily lives, and we can replace it with hope. We can be a community of hope that practices the kingdom. And what does that look like? We can be beacons of hope. We can be people who regularly spend time together, not just for the sake of having fun, not just at small group, but throughout our neighborhoods, throughout our city, where we can regularly practice hospitality, service, mission, being intentional with each other, sharing our fears, sharing our hopes, confessing to one another, forgiving one another. The world's going to see that and they're going to be like, man, that's weird, but it's beautiful. That's why it's not just for adults, it's, it's for students and for kids. It's why we don't just have Five Oaks students on Wednesday nights, but we try to have mission, we try to have fun, we try to have times where we learn and grow together because it gives us opportunities to be a community of hope. It's where we practice living with God forever. And that brings us to one of the most important and overlooked doctrines that should lead to worship, and that is that the death killer takes his rightful place. Now, I tried to um, use this part of emblems and, and say it in a way that was just as, as awesome as they say it, but I couldn't do it. So I put the video up, and we put some, the, the words to it so that you could follow along and read it. And I see some people uh, in the last video, they close their eyes, and that's a really good idea because I get really distracted. I look at my phone when videos come on. And so you're not alone. Um, but I want to challenge you during this time, either close your eyes or follow along with the words at the bottom because there is some beauty in this and some things that just, I learned a ton from this chapter. So check it out. Act three, the death killer takes his rightful place. I know what you're thinking. You want to know where the death killer is now, don't you? The answer to that lies in two returns. First, the son returned or ascended to the father. After 40 days of ministry and teaching, the resurrected Jesus took his rightful place at the right hand of his father. Christ's earthly work connects heaven and earth. The one who suffered on earth now has all rule, power, authority, and dominion forever given to him in heaven. This is why the death killer's return to the heavenly throne room doesn't mean his earthly work is done. No, he continues to work for those he came to rescue. Notice what his return to heaven means. Christ brought humanity into the heavenly places. Don't miss this. Christ didn't stop being human in the resurrection and the ascension. Instead, he made humanity right and demonstrated that you, an image bearer, are welcome before the king. That is, if you belong to the death killer. This leads to another work in his ascension. The death killer now stands before the father, pleading your case based on the merits of his own death and resurrection. If you are his, he stands up against any blame the world or the serpent throws at you. If you are his, the death killer is praying for you before his father's throne. But he never promised to remain in heaven. 
This is why there is a second return, or what those in your world call the second coming. The Death Killer pledges to come back to Earth again to complete all of his promises. Even though Christ defeated sin and death, you still face a world filled with sin and death, don't you? This is not because his work didn't work, but because it's actually a gift. The time between his ascension and his second coming allows rebels time to return to their rightful king. In his return to earth, the death killer will deal with sin, death, and the serpent once and for all. He will finally punish all his enemies, including every man, woman, boy, and girl who rejected him as the true king. This is how he makes all things right. His second coming puts everything back into its proper orbit, rings the sadness out of the world, unites heaven with earth, and places the king's throne at the center of this world made new. This promise, like a hymnline, pulls the threads of Christ's earlier cross, resurrection, and ascension work together with the hope of Christ's future work. This one, this Lord, Son of God, Son of Man, this Christ Jesus, this death killer, brings eternity past together with eternity future. He brings God to man, man to God, Christmas to Easter, the beginning to the end. And if he is your king, he unites you to himself. The question remains, where do you place your hope? Does it rest in the death killer making a way back to the king? There is only one way to find out. Turn the key to see what the death killer has done for you. This is why it is so crucially important to understand what you were saved for. It's to worship Jesus. It's important to understand your part in that. And it's not to say, hey, like this is something I can beat on my own or this is something that I was a victim of. What we see here is, uh, I love what he says here about what Christ is doing right now. But when we remember that Jesus is pleading my case before God, that Jesus is actually praying for us, not based on our failures, but on his life, death, and resurrection, it changes that sin. Its power diminishes. God's grace, love, and beauty grow. There's a lot of things being hurled at us. You're a bad parent. You're a bad mom. You're a bad dad. You're worthless. You're not good at this. And everything is based on what you think is important now. And, and, and you are being hurled insults that will make you feel less than. But what Jesus is doing in heaven, he is praying for you. He's saying, don't look at them. Look at me. Look at my work, what I have done. And that gives you infinite worth. And our response can only be humble worship. And the question we need to answer is, where do we place our hope? Are we professionals, families, People who live in a world where we look just like everybody else, but then we have a little bit of Jesus on the side. Are we actively pursuing Jesus in every area of our lives? Do we look different? Are we as 
1 Peter 2.9 says in the King James Version, are we a peculiar people? A people whose hope is built on the death killer, making a way back to the king. If you're breathing, if you're watching, if you're listening, it's not too late for you. You can fight back with new rhythms, fight back with worship, fight back by remembering what Jesus has done, by practicing the kingdom every single day. Our family uh, this past year during the pandemic um, has decided to imperfectly fight back and live for the kingdom. Every Tuesday, I hate Tuesday nights because it's the beginning of the week and there's nothing to do. And so we're like, let's do something that's helpful for our family uh, and that's to, to bring us back to worship. And so we started having family worship. I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. So if you decide to fight back with us, it may look different from, for your family. But we listen to a worship song. We listen to some kids' worship. And then we look at God's word. We have a kid's Bible. And we read a little bit of, of, uh, of the uh, big, big person Bible, uh, the regular Bible. And then, <laughs> then we, we pray. We talk about our prayers. We write down our prayers so we can look back at those prayers and see how God has answered them. And then we speak God's blessing over them. Because God's words about our kids are much more important. What God thinks about our kids is much more important than what my wife and I think about our kids. And so if you have older kids, I would challenge you, you can read this book, Emblems. Pick it up, buy it if you haven't already, and read it as a family together. Look at the pictures, engage with it. There's scripture at the end, and you can read the scripture and see how they uh, break it down within the chapters. If you have younger families, uh, I got a couple Bibles here um, that, that we use. Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible is a popular one. It always points to Christ, but there's a lot of words in it. So if you have younger kids who lose attention like my kids do very easily, the Beginner's Gospel Story Bible is, is not only beautiful, but it is very Christ-centered and very helpful. And so if you don't have one of those, definitely pick those up. Um, then we do uh, uh, worship. And you're allowed to think that kids' worship is annoying sometimes. <laughs> this isn't. This is actually really good. I like to listen to them. They, they make uh, adult worship as well, but they make beautiful, Christ-honoring kids' worship that is actually really good to listen to. And my kids love to dance to some of their uh, music videos. They're very well done um, and act them out. And so uh, check that out on YouTube or on wherever you get your music. It's a great way to start. There's a lot of good Christian music, good worship music for kids. There's also some bad stuff too. So point to some good stuff. Um, and then lastly, we speak blessings over them. And we did that during the pandemic, during church at home. And that is simply saying... Uh, what God thinks about them, like Jesus, or God knows you. He knows your name and he loves you. And then we give them a little bit of honey and we say, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's how we ended each time. And every single week, Navy and Hank, I go, what night, what night is it on Tuesday? And they're like, family worship. And it sounds really cool and it sounds like, man, we're really killing it. But every single week is a battle. <laughs> every single week. Sometimes it feels like we should quit halfway through. In fact, we did last week because Hank needed to wrestle. And we made that part of family worship. 
We uh, talk about prayers, and what does Hank pray for? He prays for penguins and dogs, and he's not talking about penguins and dogs. He's talking about his toys, okay? It seems useless. And then he smacks his sister in the face with a train track. (laughs) Navy prays for people, just people, you know? No reason to pray for them, very general. And like I said, it sometimes feels really... Uh, useless, and it feels like we're not getting to them, and sometimes there's frustration on our parts, and then we have to come back, and we're like, oh, you know, we got to worship. But every once in a while, because we do this as a rhythm, and we're, t- we're doing a family event coming up talking about rhythms and why rhythms are so important, so you should definitely go to that. Every once in a while, Navy or Hank starts seeing our broken world, starts interacting with it, starts asking questions, why is this happening? Why is our friend sick? Why is this? And then they ask these questions and then they start praying for them. And it goes from a very general thing or a very seemingly useful thing to something that has some teeth to it. And it's beautiful. And we get to interact with that and answer questions with that. Rhythms are important. Every week as a church, we do a very important rhythm. And that's communion. And when we do these rhythms at church, we're pointing to a way to live and worship throughout the week. Community, confession, a call to worship, a call of praise. And this is an important one because we look back at what Jesus has done for us, what the death killer has done on the cross. And it's not a general thing, it's a personal thing for us as a community of followers of Christ. And remember, each week, When we take the bread, that Christ's body was broken for us. And that his blood, as a human and God, was shed for us. And not only do we remember, but we look forward to when he comes again and makes everything right. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for what you did on the cross. I pray for everyone in here as we go into our worlds, as we go into our schools or Zoom meetings or home offices or wherever we end up this week that we have a a rhythm of worship where we don't look at our world as something that is just a, a beautiful thing or the end of it itself, but we have something different. We are a peculiar people. I pray as we are told stories of hope and hopeless situations that we remember what you have done for us, that you've given us freedom and hope and something far greater than anything the world can give us. I pray this in your name, amen.